You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay. Well, we continue our study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, we're now at question number three. So in your book, at I don't know, page one or two, something like that. And there's some pre- preliminary um, comments. As we have seen, our primary purpose or our chief end is to glorify and enjoy the true God. You'll notice that on my slides, the upper right-hand corner, Sam had me black out. Uh, because apparently they put the picture of the person teaching up there, so that's why there's no words <laughs> in that co- corner. I didn't want you to think that I was sort of nearsighted or something. Um, and how exactly we glorify and enjoy the Lord is revealed in the sacred scriptures. You cannot find that out by natural revelation. God reveals that to us in his word. And the scriptures we determine from the catechism are the word of God, the only perfect rule of faith and obedience. Everything we need to know about God and our duty is, is included in the word of God. I think Jason went with you last week about the uh, attributes of scripture, and he put them as sufficiency, clarity, authority, and necessity. I always remembered it by naps. Not that it puts me to sleep, but I had necessity, authority, perspicuity, and sufficiency. I just love that a fancy word, you know, it's it's expensive. But either one, it's clear and it's perspicuous. So the whole counsel of God can be summarized under these two heads according to question three, as we'll see, belief and practice. Paul says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So there we find him identifying both of these very significant concepts. The pattern of sound words, the apostolic teaching that he gives that we follow, we embrace. And that issues issues in faith and love in the lives of God's people. So there we have practice. Belief and practice go together and are blended in the Christian life. They must go together. Faith without works is dead, according to James. It is cheap and easy religion, happens all the time. It has no credibility. This is one of the reasons why elders interview or examine potential members, because we want to make sure that there is a credible profession of faith. And to have a credible profession of faith, there needs to be not only the right answers, but the right life. It follows up. It's consistent. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, Luther recoiled at that statement. But the difference, he's not disagreeing with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is that works in the sight of God. We're justified in God's sight. James is saying we're justified in man's sight because of our expressions of good works. You know, in, uh, is it Matthew 7 where Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits? That's how we evaluate teachers. What, regardless of what they're teaching, now it has to be truth, 
But their lives and the influence of their lives will show uh, the truth or falsehood of their office. Works without faith is simply moralism. It's the natural man's religion, common grace. Sadly, there are some natural men and women who probably are far more moral than many Christians. But that doesn't mean that that is true faith. Without faith, it's just simply moralism. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. I mean, you look at Judah. It's the tribe from which Jesus came. And did you ever look at the life of Judah? This guy who got rid of his brother, had incest with his daughter-in-law? He was a scoundrel, and yet he trusted in the true God. His life was messed up. Over time, I think the Spirit was sanctifying him, thankfully. But he had faith. Any questions on this before we move on? Okay? So, the question number three. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And there you have it. It does assume at the outset that there are divinely revealed truths and commandments, both of these, that, are, that make um, our belief and our practice obligatory as creatures made in the image of God. And unless God revealed these things to us, we could never know them. How thankful we need to be that God is a self-revealing God. We would not know him apart from his revelation. We would see the evidence of his glory. We would be without excuse, but we could never know him savingly or understand our duty before him. So we are commanded to believe God's truths. Isn't that interesting? Do we often think of it? We think of the invitation to believe. Have we ever thought about the command to believe? And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. It is a moral obligation for you and I to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must know him, his person, his offices as God's son and the savior of the world. And it's not just an obligation. It is the inestimable privilege of God's people to do so. But it is an obligation. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So we are obliged to know and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Our obligation is to love him, to trust him, to approve of him in our conviction and conscience. And this is always a work in progress, right? None of us are perfect. We're always striving. But this is what God sets before us. And it's only by this means that believing sinners can become acceptable worshipers of the true God. I always find it interesting that in Scripture, there is this idea of acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. We find that at the very beginning, don't we, with Cain and Abel. You know, Cain brought a sacrifice, but it was unacceptable for various reasons. Both external, it was a bloodless sacrifice, and internal, he didn't do it with faith. His worship, he did worship, unacceptable. I think that is so countercultural today. No one ever thinks about acceptable worship. They just think, whatever I do, God is honored. That's not true. Acceptable worships 
first and foremost, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot come to God except through Christ. It's the only way. It is through the Son only that we draw near to and have fellowship with the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So we're commanded to believe. Any questions, concerns about that kind of language? I just want to observe that even these points are not taught, which enables anyone to go in essentially any direction. Yeah. And this should be the foundation, and then the government, the policies of the church should follow. Yeah, and this, this, this particular point, you know, um, I'm sure you're familiar, maybe you're not. Uh, John Calvin was uh, accosted by this fiery evangelist named Farrell. And Calvin was just passing through Geneva, and he was going to go on to someplace else when Farrell realized that Calvin was in town. He was a young man, very talented. And Farrell accosted him in the sense of, Calvin, if you don't stay here and serve the Lord you are sinning against the Lord God. And so it's the command to do something, and we never hear about the command to believe. Yeah, we invite sinners. We implore them to come to Christ. But how often do we hear that you have a moral obligation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's rarely thought of that way. Jim? Um, on the third one from the bottom, yeah. can you explain to me what's meant by approval of him? Yes, that he is our Savior and our Lord, that we approve of everything he taught in terms of our consent. We're not sitting in judgment. Okay. Yeah. By the word approve, perhaps a better word would be our consent. It's like when we join with Christ in judging reprobate angels and men. What does that mean? Well, all judgment is given to the Son. So how do we join with him in judging reprobate angels and men? Well, we're behind him, and we consent to his judgment. We applaud his judgment. We approve his judgment. Yeah. That kind of thing. Okay? So we don't often consider belief to be a moral obligation, but it says believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's when Paul talked to the jailer, remember? That's a command. It's a command. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's the benefit, the consequence of trusting in him. But it is a command. I remember uh, years ago, there was a lovely lady who was attending our church in the evenings, and um, she was diagnosed with uh, a terminal illness. And she came for about six months. And I met with her repeatedly in my office, and uh, I said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, I can't. We talked about the arguments, you know, and the evidence and the truths in Scripture and stuff. I said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't. And the bottom line was, she wouldn't. I won't. Because you take God at his word. He says it. I accept it. I believe it. And it lies at the root of all true evangelical obedience. There is no true obedience apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By common grace, a decent human being, we call him decent, he's a sinner, a child of wrath, but we call him a decent human being because by God's common grace, he can do some external things, but he cannot serve God. 
Only the one who trusts in Christ and believes in the gospel can serve God. You will know the truth, said Jesus, and the truth will set you free. And by setting you free, you're free from the obligation to serve sin, and you're free to serve God, right? Romans 6, you're set free to serve him. That's the purpose. We have only two options, either belief or unbelief, and there is nothing between. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So the church is a called out body of Christ from the unbelieving world, gathered. You don't believe, you scatter. It's tragic. Any questions on that so far? Yeah, Mark? Better wrap my mind around this. And so you as a um, Calvinist leaning believer would say that you did not choose God. God chose you. It was nothing that you did. No goodness in your heart or mind. So how can someone choose not to follow God? You're, you're talking about how they, they chose not to follow God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. So the idea is if God, God chooses us, we don't choose God when we're saved, right? But we still have liberty to choose. There's a difference between liberty to choose and ability to choose. So when we become sinners, we no longer have the ability to choose what's good, to choose God. So we have the ability and liberty, freedom, to choose evil, which is what we do, right? If given the opportunity as an unbelieving, unregenerate sinner, you'll always choose sin. But when God the Holy Spirit regenerates you and changes your heart, he restores the ability to choose what is good. So regeneration always precedes faith. He gives you a new heart. He plants faith into your soul and you exercise wonderfully that faith now in choosing Christ. But the fact of the matter remains, those who are in hell, they have chosen sin. God doesn't take away the liberty to choose. Do you understand that distinction? The liberty and the ability? We've lost the ability to choose good, but we still have the liberty. There's nothing outside of us as sinners forcing us to choose evil. We choose evil willingly, with delight, continuance, every day of our lives. The, the wicked drink iniquity like water, the Old Testament says. So that's the difference. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit in particular that gives us that ability now to choose what is good. Now, as, as Christians, we struggle because we still choose evil. We have the ability to choose good or evil. You know as well as I do, every day we choose evil in some ways, right? But thankfully, the perfect obedience of Christ, that righteousness is imputed to us. We're clothed in his righteousness, and God looks at us as if we've never sinned. It's a wonderful thing. An amazing gospel. Rob? So your example, you said the wicked drank iniquity like water. Yeah. Uh, but if somebody stole their water, they would know that was wrong. So they're at least halfway to knowing right from wrong. So. You're right. They, you're exactly right. They do know right from wrong. You're exactly right. 
And they get upset when anybody breaks the second table of the, the moral law, right? They could care less about the first four commandments. You take my water. I can take yours, it's no big deal. Don't take mine, Ruthanne. We also, we've also taught about Adam's representation for us, that when, when we were able, and when we had ability and liberty, we still chose evil. And then only Christ, having ability and liberty, has chosen perfection and fulfilled righteousness for us. So just as he can rightly represent us, Adam rightly represented us, and if we had had the liberty and ability, we would have fallen too, or else God would be just in including us under Adam. Yeah, good point. That's exactly right. Adam chose the same way we would have chosen. And in him, we sinned and had fallen, and in Christ, thankfully, we're saved. Very thankful for that. Was there another hand that I missed? Okay. Um, Romans 1, 16 and 17, talking about the gospel being the power of God and salvation, the righteous shall live by faith. That's weightier than Paul saying, bring me the parchments from Troas. Now, that's authoritative, but it's not as weighty as this idea that the gospel is the power of God. So there are fundamental truths. We must know, according to Hebrews 6, the elementary doctrine of Christ. There is a body of knowledge that is absolutely essential for a person to be a Christian. Again, one of the reasons why we have interviews. Do you have an idea of what this body of knowledge is? Because God doesn't treat us like stumps or logs. He treats us as reasoning creatures. And the truth, remember the truth sets you free. Discipleship involves training believers to observe everything that Jesus commanded, which is comprehensive, 66 books. But those things necessary to be embraced for salvation are the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now, the sticky wicket, what are those elementary doctrines? And there's some debate. No one, no one debates whether there are elementary doctrines, but what are those elementary doctrines? Spiritual milk easily digested in contrast to the spiritual meat that is comprised of deeper things. You know, Peter says something like, Paul's writings are hard to understand. <laughs> Even Peter had a problem with some of it. Um, but there are things, if you want to be saved, it's clear. Remember the attributes of Scripture, perspicuity or clarity. The doctrines of God, just for example, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ, justification, sanctification, glorification, these things are necessary to be known and believed to be a Christian. What's Hebrews 11 say? You must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, what does that mean, reward those? Well, it's simply out of grace that God gives them the inheritance, fully purchased, freely given, and embraced by those who believe in Jesus Christ. We need to know. That's why discipleship is so important. They're called the basic principles of the oracles of God in the previous chapter. 
the foundation upon which, if it is solid, the superstructure of faith and godliness is built. And Jesus says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words, understands the truth, and does them, lays the foundation on the rock. Any questions on the fundamental? I mean, it's a difficult subject because some would say all 33 chapters of the confession are absolutely necessary. And they have a point. I don't, I wouldn't want to argue with them. Why else would the divines have included those truths in this creed, this confession? But I do think there are some things that the confession rightly brings out that are not necessary for salvation. And that's where we would discuss some of that. Oaths and vows. There's a wonderful chapter on oaths and vows. We need to understand the importance of oaths and vows. But I don't think you have to know that to be saved. Any questions? Okay. Oh, great. So with some of the simplicity of that, just make sense from a practical perspective. Otherwise, we'd only be able to like save people after a certain, you know, a long period of time or something. You'd be instructed for so long, and then you could receive salvation. So right. The span of life of God is a minimal amount. You know, if preaching can just come to somebody and they can hear the word and believe it, the message on the spot it seems like. The gospel can be presented literally in minutes to somebody. They can understand and believe and have yeah. a sufficient faith. Right. Even right there on the spot. You're exactly right. And how would a child be saved? Some of these things are beyond. I remember when I was converted, I was an adult and I was biblically illiterate. I didn't know anything, literally. And uh, the Lord changed my heart. And I remember the guy upstairs came down. I was living in an apartment. The guy upstairs came down and he and I would go to the bar regularly. And he came down to my door and he opened the door and said, hey, let's go. And I said, I'm not going to go. And he said, why not? I said, well, I think I'm getting closer to God. <laughs> and that's all I could say. I didn't have any theological furniture to, to describe what was happening. All I knew is that something tremendous had happened. And I had been exposed as a child to enough uh, morality and teaching about heaven and hell that I kind of knew something. So anyway, you're right. I mean, it can be done briefly, but there is certain things that you do have to sin. Gail? We've been taught make main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good saying. Yeah, that's right. We need to keep that distinction before us, especially when we're dealing with intramural debates, you know. They are intramural. They're not enemy. We're not enemies. Growth and knowledge, we have to learn and observe everything Jesus taught until we all attain. This is Paul talking about the ministry in the church. We attain to the unity of the faith. There's unity in the faith, not my faith. It's the faith that we all embrace. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So Paul is identifying Christian maturity with being united in the, in the faith and knowing the Son of God. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This happens all the time. Winds of doctrine blow across the landscape and people are just blown off the course. Unless you have a solid foundation, you will be blown about like corks on the sea. There is an ignorance that arises from negligence with regard to the appointed means of grace. Oh, was there a hand? I'm sorry. No, okay. 
And sin is aggravated in part by the advantages and opportunities that we spurn out of spiritual sloth. Did you get that? That Israel had every advantage and judgment starts at the household of God. Why? Because he's given them everything. And Israel proved that no matter how many advantages we have as sinners, we can't do it. The necessity of Christ is spoken on every page of the Old Testament because they could not keep the faith, even though I had every advantage. Such privileges only heighten our guilt if we neglect them and refuse to take advantage of them. Though by this time, says the apostle, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So his assumption is that these people have been walking with the Lord, worshiping him over the course of many years. They should have been teachers. They should have understood the doctrines of Christianity. And yet they themselves needed remedial help. Negligence. I've known people, and, and they're, they're wonderful people. I'm not trying to criticize them unnecessarily, but I've known older saints who I know they love the, they love the Lord. But they've been in the church 40 years. And if you ask them, what is the gospel? They have a very difficult time telling you. Now, I know they, they love Christ. They love the Lord and their sins are forgiven. That's not a, a question here. But being able to explain the gospel, they can. They're not teachers. And a teacher doesn't mean standing up here at this lectern. A teacher means you're discipling your child your friend, your neighbor, whatever. There is an ignorance also that consists in a superficial understanding of Christianity. What little knowledge is obtained only results in doubt, speculation, and or a lack of consistency. They can't put it into practice. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable and disobedient. Now, that's the extreme case. Um, there's, a, there's different gradations there. But we need to grow in our knowledge of Christ. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God. We need to grow. There are so many helps that are available to us today. Shorter catechism, what we're going through now. If you just memorize the first 38 answers to the shorter catechism, you will know more than I'm going to guess 80% of the seminarians out there. And I'm not kidding you. That's not an exaggeration. I went to seminary with, well, the people who could not argue themselves out of a paper bag. <laughs> anyway, any questions on growth, Jim? I just uh, thought about what you were saying. A pastor mentioned that uh, being a shepherd and uh, taking care of his flock and fence mending and fence building and using these ordinary means, advantages, and opportunities as a shepherd of your house, a shepherd of this house. To keep it tended and mended so the sin doesn't enter, it keeps it from afar. So Amen. a sense of responsibility to take care of yourself, take care of your house, and take care of the Lord's house. Amen. Yeah, well said. I like the way, um, I forget where I heard it, but somebody said the job of the, of the shepherds of the church. In other words, you guys, you can do anything you want. I can tell you in good confidence, you can do anything you want. You just can't sin. <laughs> That's it. 
So my job as a shepherd is to make sure you don't sin. Do whatever you want. Requirement to obey, not only do the scriptures principally teach what man has to believe concerning God, but what duty God requires of man. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, says Paul, but keeping the commandments of God. In the gospel, not just the Old Testament, in the gospel, great emphasis is laid upon obedience. By keeping the commandments of God, the apostle means not mere external conformity. This was the error so fondly embraced by the Pharisees who prized their outward appearance. Jesus taught that true evangelical obedience is from the heart, mind, will, affections, as well as body. And conformity to God's will is a full-fledged submission to his word in both soul and body. Gospel has been made known to all nations to bring about the obedience of faith. So you see there, what he's saying is that the obedience is the expression of true faith. Now, none of us are perfect. I don't want you to go home thinking, oh, man, you know, I'm beaten down because I can't obey. No, we can't. That's the whole point of Jesus coming. But this is what he's doing. He's working in us gradually, this, this desire to obey. <clears throat> He wants this from those whom he has redeemed by Christ and sanctifies by his spirit. And the credibility of our profession is established primarily upon sincere obedience. Do you want to obey? Yes, I know you can't perfectly. I know that you and I both struggle every day. But is that desire in your heart that you want to please your heavenly father? That's an expression of true faith. Ian? Uh, I think one of the scariest questions for me when the elder is going to come visit at the house is what are the areas that you're seeing of sanctification in your walk? And I always like, I stay up like the night before. <laughs> what are we going to say? <laughs> uh, but it's a great question. It needs to be asked. Can I come next week? <laughs> <laughs> if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not enough to hear his voice, we have to obey. And in large part, this is the way we honor him. A son honors his father, a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? So we must not only believe the doctrines, we must also obey the commands, or at least try. Thomas Watson says, obedience without knowledge is blind, and knowledge without obedience is lame. See, back then he used that word. It's great. Lame. The conclusion that Solomon draws at the end of his exploration is comprised of these things. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God. Filial fear. You trust him as a son and reverence him as your father. And you keep his commandments because this is the whole duty of man. Solomon had been searching for meaning in life and happiness and experience, but to no avail. He tried it all. But finally, he concluded that satisfaction, true happiness, is found in the filial fear of God as his adopted child and obedience to him. And it's the outgrowth of filial fear that it's expressed in conformity to God's will. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of relief in the next slide, but any questions at this point? Okay. 
I'm sorry, it's this next slide. Oh, well, you'll have to wait a minute. <laughs> it's in conformity with God's word because zeal without knowledge is just self-made religion, according to Paul. And so it highlights the importance that we have to be familiar with Scripture. If this is what the Scriptures teach, then we have to be familiar with the Scriptures. God puts the conscience in the soul. That's the lamp of the Lord that exposes, right? But we need to have an informed conscience. A child knows instinctively something's wrong. But the child needs to be trained and informed so that his conscience can become more precise. What exactly is right and wrong as God sees it? Knowledge is gained, truths are learned, conscience is informed, and these are, there are various things necessary for our obedience to be acceptable. They must be voluntary and cheerful, not coerced, because God loves a cheerful giver. There has to be some fervency about it. Obedience without fervency is like a sacrifice without fire. I think it was Watson that said that. So we're fervent. It must be comprehensive, not selective, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. You can't just pick and choose which one you want to obey. obey. Oh, I've got nine of them down, but that lying one, ninth commandment, it's tough. No, comprehensive. It's sincere, not hypocritical. You aim at God's glory, Christ's honor, your own and others' good. And it's in and through Jesus whose merits are sufficient. He's blessed us or accepted us in the Beloved. If you will indeed obey my voice, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So this is the idea that the scriptures teach us our duty and our focus in life ought to be in part fulfilling our duty. Again, a four-letter word in the modern ear, duty. But it's so important to teach children to do hard things, to do the thing they don't want to do, right? when they throw a fit, when they fuss. Hey, this is your duty. Learn to do your duty. God made you for this, and ultimately you'll be more happy in that way. What happened to my slide? <laughs> I'm sorry, well, anyway. The promissory nature of sacraments comes in here. There are means by which Christ conveys grace. He does do that. The Holy Spirit accompanies the sacraments with his gracious power, but they also oblige us to obedience. That term sacrament originates from the Latin sacramentum, which refers to a solemn oath. Baptism in the triune name. It obliges the party baptized to obey the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. You come under the authority of the triune God. Whether you like it or not, you're obliged to obey. Just like a child born in the United States has the privilege of citizenship and is obliged to obey the law of the land. A child baptized in the church has the privilege of heavenly citizenship in the visible community of faith and is obliged to obey the Lord. Martin Luther often resisted the onslaughts of the devil by saying, I'm baptized, right? Somebody comes in, um, a woman wants to, you know, uh, get amorous. I'm married, I'm married, that's what you say. The devil comes in, wants to uh, tempt you, I'm baptized. I have the mark of the covenant on me, I can't do that. 
The Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal ceremony in which we reaffirm our allegiance to the king every time. We're so prone to forget and neglect our duty that the recurring ceremony is necessary. Every time you and I take that supper, eat that bread, drink that cup, we commemorate his death and we, we reaffirm our allegiance to our king. It nourishes and strengthens the soul so that we can follow his example. As often as you eat this bread, drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That death was for you. That death obliges you to follow instead. Any questions on sacraments? Okay. There we go. I don't want you to be burdened by a sense of your own weakness. I'm weak. You're weak. We sin. Who's sufficient for this? None of us. Not one of us here. Our best works are imperfect and defiled in God's sight. And in Christ, he improves our sincerity in place of perfection. There are many places in Scripture that provide support. Let me give you at least two. Nehemiah, O Lord, be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Not perfectly honor your name, but my delight, my desire is to fear your name. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, the willingness, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. You don't have the ability to have perfect obedience, but if you're willing, he accepts the sincerity. So in the covenant of grace, God accepts the willingness for the deed, a readiness and a desire, because Jesus has already performed perfect obedience. Willingness to obey is not the cause of obtaining eternal life, but it is the appointed way to it. The inheritance is fully purchased, and it's freely given to believers who sincerely strive to obey Christ and that's the evidence of our right by the blood of Christ to inherit the kingdom of God. Any questions? Andy? Uh, we had our summer conference uh, down in Florida this past week. I was doing a seminar on justification. And so many of the students had the question, just like, okay, well, like, how much of this do I need to know in order to, like, have faith? You know, as we're going through all these things, and I love, we went through Westminster Learner Catechism 72, just fine faith. It talks about, okay, you're convicted of your sin. You're convinced of your inability to save yourself. You ascend to the truth and promise of the gospel. And you receive and rest in Christ alone. And recognizing, okay, what does it mean to receive and rest? All throughout, like, Israel, when they're given times to rest, it's a time of celebration and worship. And so as we sort of, like, what it looks like to have faith is to celebrate in the work of Christ on their behalf. And that celebration looks like obedience. Amen. And, like, really hit home. Uh, hits home for me. Yeah. Uh, every day. It's not this sort of your faith is proven uh, later on. Uh, your faith is showed forth by your celebration. Yeah. No, that's an excellent point. I love the fact that at the in the Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments are contained, um, it begins with the preface: "I have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage," and that's the basis upon which these moral obligations are given. And many of us believe that the commandments themselves are not simply moral obligations, but they're prophecies, right? You shall have no other gods before. That's a prophecy. Because I've redeemed you, I've justified you, 
You're going to celebrate no other God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You'll honor my name. You'll love my day. You'll uh, give honor to the authorities. That is a prophecy of God's people. And it's based upon this idea that he's done it all. We celebrate. The Christian life really is a life of celebration. We rejoice in the Lord. This day, you know, so often perceived as a burden, the Sabbath, Sabbath keeping, and some people have made it a burden. But keeping the Christian Sabbath is a joyful thing. You are freed from your responsibilities throughout the week. You are freed to focus and celebrate the Lord. And he's blessed it. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He has blessed this day to be a means of blessing to you. It's a wonderful thing. He's provided all these wonderful things for us. Um, so let me close in prayer. We're time to get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scriptures in which you have revealed to us those things that we can believe and the duties that we can perform as children of the King. We pray that you'll help us to rejoice and celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ who did this to perfection and whose righteousness you impute to every one of us who sincerely receives and rests upon him. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.